this is Solving Problems and Starting New Ones, a show that tries to be an incubator of great ideas and a place to challenge popular wisdom. And today, we're talking about the Supreme Court in a segment called Judgment in Politics, and you'll get all this from a guy in the street perspective. But before we begin, hit the subscribe button, share the show, follow us on Facebook, and leave a five-star review. Do it up. All right, all right, before we get to our big topic, we got to dig into our 2021 post-apocalypse update of 2021. Let's check out some headlines I've missed over the last few weeks. From uh, the New York Times, Dr. Seuss books are pulled and a cancel culture controversy erupts. So they're pulling these books because of racist imagery. But let's be honest, how many people realized this when they were reading these books all throughout the decades? No one. The only person who saw this was someone who gets paid to be a nag. And I can't stand when they ban books because that's how you erase people and their artistic abilities. I'll give you an example. There was a band that no one's ever heard of from the 60s, very talented, and were definitely on their way to revolutionize music. But on the way, uh, they ran into some controversy. Maybe they, I don't know, moved their hips too much on the Ed Sullivan show or something. So their albums and posters were burnt in bonfires all across the country, effectively erasing them and their artistic talent from the earth. So if they can erase a band called the, uh, the hell they called? The Beatles, I believe, then what can't this cancel culture take away? Washington Post. Biden administration expected to announce plan to ban menthol cigarettes. Quick question. And it's the first thing that popped in my head when I read this, so you know, it kind of helped me out. Is Biden being racist for banning menthol cigarettes? Or am I being racist for thinking Biden's being racist for banning menthol cigarettes? Because, you know, you know, whatever, you let me know either way. All right, what else we got? Uh, Derek Chauvin was charged for the murder of George Floyd. He was found guilty of second-degree murder, which means he killed with intentions of killing. And he was found guilty on third-degree murder, which, mean, which means he killed without intentions of killing. Okay, that seems fine. Moving on. From People, People Magazine, Democratic officials apologize after calling Republican Senator Tim Scott an Oreo. You know what's messed up? Is late-night talk show host and Democrat thinkers will attack Tim Scott and Republicans for only having one black senator. They do realize there's only three black senators in total, right? Jesus Christ. This has been your 2021 post-apocalypse update of 2021. All right, all right, let's get into it. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court. We'll cover the history, the problems, and what we can do about it. Let's start with a quote. It is a decision of the Supreme Court. If Congress wants to change it, it will require legislation of a level of a constitutional amendment. So this is almost as if God has spoken. That was Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi speaking on the strength of the Supreme Court and the power behind this, the decisions that they make. Is it true that they have God-level power over the people? Was it always like this? And if not, what changed? Can a country keep itself together in the long run when nine or sometimes five out of nine unelected officials make the decision for all 50 states and their people? What if the judges make the wrong decision? Do the states have to obey? Most importantly, was it meant to be this way? And according to history and the Constitution, no. After the War of Independence, the new American government created the Supreme Court to have the final word on disputes that the states couldn't settle. There were originally six justices, making any decision by the court a two-thirds majority. At this time, the court was anything but supreme. For nearly a decade, Congress and the president had the real power. 
In practice, the Supreme Court was weak, ineffectual, and disorganized starting out. Simply put, it was boring and so unappealing that many people turned down uh, nominations to serve on the bench. That all changed with Chief Justice John Marshall and the Marbury v. Madison decision in 1803. The issue on the case was, who can ultimately decide what the law is? And the Supreme Court decided the answer to that question is themselves, or rather, the uh, judicial branch. In what's considered the court's first landmark case, it established the principle of judicial review, which wasn't fully enshrined in the early years. It meant that the courts could strike down laws, statutes, and some government actions that they find violates the Constitution. This case would cement the Constitution as law of the land and help create boundaries between the executive and judicial branches of government. For many uh, law scholars and defenders of the Constitution, the worst era of the Supreme Court began in 1857 with the Dred Scott v. Sanford decision, denying citizenship to African Americans, which would help usher in the Civil War. Then after, Plessy v. Ferguson, which would enshrine segregation, allowing for separate but equal utilities. Also, often forgotten, Karamasu versus the United States, a case which would erase the rights of Americans of Japanese descent by proclaiming the internment of them during World War II was constitutional. And lastly, Roe v. Wade, which would have the Supreme Court create an imaginary constitutional right to abortion. In each of these cases, the court would go into areas that were preserved for states and Congress to decide on. Meanwhile, they created their own versions of rights along the way. All that being said, this leads us to a question of, was Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954 the right decision? That was a case that decided separate but equally uh, segregated public schools were inherently not equal and unconstitutional. The Supreme Court should not have had the right to change the laws of a state, even the Jim Crow Southern states. To do so would require using societal and educational theory rather than the Constitution. Can some things be separate but equal? Of course, we see that all the time in business and in life. The real problem was, and this should have been the court's decision on the case, the funding of black schools were truly uneven to white schools and therefore unconstitutional. If the court went in this direction, then the districts would have had no choice but to either take money from the white schools to fund the black schools or end segregation. Essentially, that would have had the same positive impact of Brown versus the Board of Education, but without the consequences. Instead, the 1954 decision began the era of activist court. At the time of this decision, the beginning of the media age was on the rise, shaping people's opinion. How could it not? Images of young black folks being bitten by dogs, being beaten or hosed by the police were available for people to see on TV. This growing support, along with the Supreme Court's unanimous decision, would provide the fuel needed to move the civil rights movement forward. All this has led to a more activist court. Though they made the right moral decision, which would pave the way for civil rights, but was it the right legal decision? Which brings us to Roe v. Wade in 73. Your stance on abortion need not apply. This was the direction that I believe started the modern-day schism, along with Nam, we have today in this country, and certainly perverts every presidential election for close to the last five decades. Was the question of, is a potential life important or not, worth the, the, the divide in this country? For some, yes. Or was the best solution to leave it to the states to decide and reap the benefits or the cost? Is the court too focused on looking good when they, when they see fit rather than following the Constitution? Throughout history, the court has shown its uncanny ability to supremely screw up a country by creating policies when it's not their job. 
The trend continues with the current era of nine unelected officials, and the lower courts have gotten in on the excitement as well. In July of 2012, Charlie Craig and Dave Mullins, a same-sex couple, visited Masterpiece Cake Shop in Linwood, Colorado to order a wedding cake for their hometown celebration. Jack Phillips, a Christian baker, declined their cake request, citing that he did not create wedding cakes for marriages of gay couples owing it to his Christian beliefs. Though he did offer other baked goods, the couple left the shop. Not long after, the couple filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission under the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. The act prohibits businesses open to the public from discriminating against their customers on the basis of race, gender, religion, or sexual orientation. The complaint would result in a lawsuit against Phillips. In the first case, Phillips would lose and the cake shop was ordered not only to be forced against their religious beliefs to make same-sex wedding cakes, but to change its company's policies, provide comprehensive staff training regarding public accommodations against discrimination, and provide quarterly reports for the next two years regarding steps it has taken to come into compliance and whether it has turned away any prospective customers. Instead of dealing with all that, Phillips decided he would just wouldn't make wedding cakes anymore. The move would cost him about 40% of his sales. He would try to appeal the decision in the Colorado Court of Appeals only to lose again. The decision was made on the grounds that the act of making a cake was part of the expected business and not an expression of free speech or a free exercise of religion. After the Colorado Supreme Court declined to hear an appeal, the United States Supreme Court surprisingly took up the case. This cake better be the best tasting cake that's ever been created. So those were the basic facts of the case. Let's break this down to the core argument that really matters. Should the government force someone to create and use their artistic ability to perform a labor against their will? The answer is no. Your opinion may vary, but the truth is nobody put you in charge of anyone and you don't have the right to tell someone what to do unless you've given birth to them or have paid them and neither transaction took place. If we want to be a country of diverse people, then there has to be an acknowledgement that certain lifestyles are going to collide at times. As long as it doesn't involve physical harm or above, then the right course of action is to put people back to where they were before the collision. The same-sex couple doesn't get a cake, and the Christian baker doesn't get their money. Nobody wins, nobody loses, everyone moves on in a rational world. Instead, we have a court system and a government that thinks picking a side, be it religious or sexual orientation, is the right way to go for a country. That way of thinking, it wouldn't work in a household, a business, and it sure as hell won't end well for a country. So, did the Supreme Court make things right? Not really. Though the court would actually go against the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, citing the state's obligation of religious neutrality, which it failed to do. However, the court found a way to make a decision without providing a clear answer on the main concern of religious freedoms and gay rights. So even though Phillips won the case, the lawsuits and harassments continue to this day. Because of this, calls and emails issuing death threats and requests for gay, transgender, and the occasional devil-smoking weed cakes are a daily occurrence. As of this episode, another lawsuit against the baker has just been issued. This whole scenario originally stems from the Supreme Court's decision on Obergefell v. Hodges. The court ruled that the 14th Amendment requires a state to license a marriage between two people of the same sex. Just to clarify, if you think uh, marriage between a gay couple should be legal, that's fantastic, but it's not the point. Do you really think the people writing the 14th Amendment had same-sex marriages on on the mind in 1868? Absolutely not, but the Supreme Court thinks they did. Now, instead of having a Congress to flesh out gay rights and religious freedoms, 
when it comes to marriage licenses to you know avoid as much conflict as possible, instead of allowing gay rights leadership to have their their moment to persuade Congress and have their moment in the mold of say like a Martin Luther King speech, instead we have the hot mess Supreme Court passing a garbage fire ruling that leads to a train wreck situation. Let's talk about deferred action for childhood arrivals. DACA is essentially an executive order created by former President Barack Obama in June of 2012. The order allows some individuals with unlawful presence in the U.S. after being brought in, uh, brought into the country as children to receive a renewable two-year deferred action from deportation and become eligible for a work permit. The problem with this is it's 100% unconstitutional. This is the executive branch creating laws. Anyone, who, anyone who's had a fourth grade civic or history class would tell you that the legislative branch, Congress, creates the law. The executive branch, President, executes the law. And lastly, the judicial branch, Supreme Court, interprets the law. The roles are defined, yet all the executive and judicial branches seem to want to do is ignore the simple concept. To be clear, if you think DOC is uh, a great idea or a bad immigration policy, that, that's great, but it's not what matters. Congress needs to pass the law, not the president. The president already has enough weapons at, at his disposal. He could easily tell immigration and custom, custom enforcement not to deport people, and that would be legally acceptable because the president has authority over ICE. They are part of the executive branch. Typically, an executive order, if deemed unconstitutional, can be overturned by the courts. Somehow, this particular case wasn't overturned by the courts, so now it gets left to the next president to decide if they want to continue or abolish the executive order. In 2017, enter President Trump to do just that. The laws passed by Congress, the Constitution, and 130 years of settled cases do not permit anyone who has entered the country illegally the ability to stay or sue for rights to remain in the country. When President Trump tried to end DACA, the decision ultimately, ultimately ended up in the hands of the Supreme Court where they swiftly ignored the law, the Constitution, and their own settled cases from years past. After the decision was made, the courts demanded President Trump to not only refrain from deporting illegal immigrants, but also grant them the ability to stay even though the law is 100% against this. The court has absolutely no power to ask the executive branch, the president, to take any action that goes in the opposite direction of the law. They have no way to enforce it. Local governments have a way to enforce laws. It's called the police. The IRS has a law enforcement unit, and even the post office has their own police force. What does the Supreme Court have to enforce their laws? Nothing, because they are not legislators. They should, they, they should have nothing that needs to be enforced. So you have Barack Obama creating policies illegally, a court that supports a made-up policy, Trump trying to get rid of an imaginary law, and recently President Biden reinstating this policy that shouldn't even exist. There is absolutely no way anyone would have signed on to the Constitution if they knew the states would have to obey laws based on how the Supreme Court felt on a particular day. It wouldn't make any sense then, and it doesn't make any sense now. Without order, you only have chaos. The Supreme Court will never be, nor was it ever balanced or fair to both sides of the political aisle. You can look back to Samuel Chase running for president multiple times, or President Taft who served on the bench as examples of judges having political views that clearly tipped the scales to one side or the other. They weren't meant to be super legislators. They weren't meant to have this much power over everything. They weren't meant to be gods. They are only supreme only to other courts. They are not supreme over the president, Congress, or we the people for that matter. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas in April of 2021 pointed out the biases of courts when it comes to certain issues. 
Quote, when addressing juvenile murderers, this court has stated that children are different and the courts must consider a child's lesser culpability, Thomas wrote. And yet, when assessing the court-created right to an individual of the same age to seek an abortion, members of the court take great pains to emphasize a young woman's right to choose. It is curious how the court's view of maturity of minors ebbs and flows depending on the issues. End of quote. To end the supremacy of the Supreme Court and mitigate the damage they can cause or create, a few suggestions have been floated around. The worst among them, and therefore the most popular among politicians, is court packing. This has been brought up before during the FDR administration. Apparently signing 3,728 executive orders wasn't enough power for that president. He wanted the courts to side with them on every issue as well. The most glaring problem with that, or solution depending on your viewpoint, is that the court could easily go from supremacy to illegitimacy. One side of the aisle adds four seats, and then when the power swings the other way, they add 10, then 100, and then before you know it, you and me are on the Supreme Court. Simply put, the states are going to ignore any ruling passed by what would become a burnt branch of the government, effectively ending the legitimacy. So I guess that's one way to rein them in, you know? A better suggestion, but not perfect, would be to go back to how it was before when there were only six judges on the bench. Only a two-thirds majority could overrule Congress. A 7-2 ruling would make a little more sense than running over Congress and the people who voted them in with a 5-4 decree. The only downside to this idea is it would make it tougher on some cases to overturn wrong rulings by lower courts. Though overall, it would be effective in the vast majority of cases. Currently, the Supreme Court is believed to be conservative-leaning, so pushing this idea from the blue team may get the ball rolling. Lastly, another idea to rein in the courts, including local ones, is jurisdiction stripping. The Constitution only allows the courts three areas of original jurisdiction that can't be removed without a constitutional amendment. Cases dealing with ambassadors and government ministers, cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, whatever the hell that means, and disputes between multiple states or residents of multiple states. And that's it. So what that means is everything else can be taken away by Congress. The Constitution gives the legislative branch very broad powers to regulate the judicial branch. The rule applies to state courts as well. So if state legislators or Congress pass a law stating the courts have no jurisdiction on, say, campaign finance laws or term, term limits, then I don't think you would need a constitutional amendment to pass the contribution cap or term limits that we talked about in episode 1 and 4. Had something like this been done for the McCain-Feingold Act, the decision on Citizens United case would have been of no consequence, which we also talked about in episode 1, for example. You could also strip them of their ability to pass law-changing rulings on immigration and marriages as other examples. It could also and should mostly be used for just certain pieces of legislation that Congress wants to pass. So in short, to end judicial supremacy, we need to pressure Congress to make it so the Supreme Court needs a supermajority to strike down congressional laws and strip the court of its ability for certain legislation, particularly when its policies or issues being debated among the citizens. In a rational country, this would ensure both sides of the argument and their disagreements have been heard completely instead of being completely overruled. The states could, as well, choose to ignore rulings by the Supreme Court. It's not like they have a way to enforce their decisions. And that's all I got for you today. We'll be back a little bit quicker next time. This was Solving Problems and Stop Noon. See you.